the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Welcome to another edition of the Spot Track Podcast. My name is Mike Gennetti. It's Friday, January 12th, our fourth podcast of the week. I promised you I was going to get to as many as possible with the NFL heavy stuff, but it is not an NFL show today. I will be back to it shortly. The writing of NFL offseason pieces continues. Hope to have all six divisions in terms of off-season finances and cap-clearing possibilities live within just a couple hours here. So at the time you're listening to this, please find your way over to spotrush.com and check out your favorite division, all the divisions, because they should all be live shortly. On the docket today, I'm going to break down some of the Major League Baseball moves. Yesterday was the arbitration deadline. I believe we have 23 contracts going to arbitration, at least for right now. There's some big ones. There's some big numbers posted as we expected. We'll get through some of those numbers. A couple of thoughts on some other situations happening in Major League Baseball with just 30 days until pitchers and catchers report in a lot of cases. So we're here. It's time. It's a month away. Back end of this show, it was time to bring Keith Smith back. Um, Obviously, some trade stuff, some Warriors discussion, a a bigger discussion on NBA money because he's um, as connected, I think, as humanly possible for somebody not named Woger Shams. He's in that second tier and maybe he's, he's on his own island. And he's been trying to say without saying to us for a while now that, hey, we should, we should kind of calm down with some of the NBA money talk in terms of just how you know, rich this, this situation may be. He, uh, he was pretty firm about keeping the projected salary cap implications lower than, project, than a lot of people are saying, even to this day. If you're out there looking at Kawhi Leonard extension numbers and you see X dollars coming out of ESPN and a very different number coming out of Spot Track, that's not an accident. We're not, we're not idiots. Okay, uh, Keith's numbers are coming from the projected cap that he is holding firm to because the NBA people are telling him, "Hey, we may get the 10% increase. We probably won't." And there's reasons behind that. Keith is. Pretty, pretty forthcoming about those reasons. And he's also pretty, um, pretty forthcoming about the fact that they may just blow past those projections and go big anyway. So it's a really interesting discussion. Uh, there's some coaching stuff with Eric Spolster's contract and what that means for Steve Kerr and people like that. So it's about 30 really nice minutes with Keith. It's been a while. It's been a minute for Keith on this podcast with kind of an, an all-encompassing NBA money discussion as we approach that trade deadline. All right, some baseball stuff. Obviously, the the breadwinner yesterday is Juan Soto, as we expected. This is not out of left field, no pun intended. He joins the Yankees. This was going to be the arbitration salary. There was never going to be a long-term extension conversation for Juan Soto because his agent is Scott Boris. And when you get to arbitration four, there's really no turning on that key. It's not happening. So this is going to be a one for $31 million contract. In terms of arbitration for for Juan Soto, it's a big, big number. It's the it's a historic number, surpassing Shohei Otani's thirty million last year by one million as the new leader in the all time clubhouse. And then we'll get to the off season, and I think uh, betting on yourself in this scenario, not a bad situation because this lineup is good. All right, it's it's always been good. The Bronx Bombers have really never gone away. <clears throat> There's been some better iterations and some worse iterations. This is going to be a good one. And if Giancarlo Stanton sticks on this roster and obviously plays himself, what are we asking? 120 games? Is that probably too much? Maybe 100 games, at least in terms of a hitter? This is going to be a hell of a lot of a fun to watch. It really will be. All right. Projected as LeMahieu, Judge, Soto, Rizzo. You know, Torres is going to hit some bombs. He's got 25 last year. And Stanton, 24 and a very modified season, 400 plus plate appearances, there's seven people out of this out of this nine-man lineup right now that should hit 20 bombs pretty easily. Six definitely, seven should. And that's not counting Anthony Rizzo, who's fallen off a truck here and might be batting cleanup for this team, right, as a lefty. So I get it. It's a phenomenal place for Juan Soto to bet on himself. He's now got a phenomenal one-year arbitration salary. And, uh, and the chain keeps on moving from there. Is he still a $500 million player next year? Not mathematically, all right? Uh, the, the shine has worn off in terms of actual mathematical calculations with Juan Soto. There's been some inconsistencies, 
even at the plate, right? I'm, I'm not tracking much, if any at all, defensive deficiencies that he may have. I think he's an adequate defender. I think he takes plays off. And it's not great, right? It's not my favorite thing in the world to have to report. It has made him not my favorite player in the world to watch or root for. So I'm hoping that the the lure, the carrot that dangles out there that is $500 million plus, now that we know where Shohei Otani has landed, drives him to be a more motivated player because I think he's absolutely vital to the return to, to stardom of the New York Yankees. So we'll see. The money's here and there's a hell of a lot more money waiting for him in eight months if everything goes properly, whether it's with the Yankees or on some sort of free agent tour like we've seen players take here. It's there. But again, I, I have seen a little more bad than I've wanted to out of Juan Soto. And that's me personally. I know there's plenty of plenty of smart people out there that <clears throat> know the advanced stuff, that know that this guy is still an absolute rock star. And I'm not saying he's not. I'm saying the resume could be better. And maybe over the next six months, he'll work his ass off to make sure that it is. And so that he has an absolute pristine situation heading into the offseason. What do I think he's going to get? Uh, 50 million a year is probably about right. That's probably where we're going to be. And, you know, this deferral stuff isn't going away. The Yankees very rarely defer, if at all. All right. It's just not one of those franchises that does it. There will be plenty of opportunities for other franchises to come in. Um, the Nationals loved doing it. It's one of the reasons Juan Soto wanted to get the hell out of there. And I'm not sure Juan Soto will buy in. He's a very different human being than Otani. He's a very different human being than a lot of players that have accepted kind of half and half, right? Half now, half later, Mookie Betts being one. But if somebody like Boston comes in swigging big and they want to defer, defer 25% of it for payroll purposes, I'm not sure that, that Juan Soto would be able to say no. That's certainly one of the teams I'm identifying. They are trickling upward, right? Making some sneaky little moves this year probably going to look a little better on the standings than we anticipate out of the gate and may just have the lure, the, the, the proper timing, financials, payroll, tax situation to handle a, an absolute crushing overpay for a player like Juan Soto. And by the way, stealing him away for the Yankees, not a terrible storyline either. So one for 31, the big arbitration contract from yesterday. Pete Alonzo, the other big, uh, big swinger here, cashed in 20.5 million and you're saying, all right, that's markedly lower than Juan Soto's 31 million. It sure is. Uh, numbers wise, production wise, there's a gap there. Uh, Juan Soto, a much more complete hitter at the plate, much less strikeouts, a ton more presence and discipline at the plate. He has been for a long time. I mean, my God, I remember his first at bat coming out of the Nationals. He was immediately looked at and compared to Manny Ramirez out of the gate as a rookie. And he's held for the most part, he's held up. So heading into free agency, that is the big difference between him and a lot of these swingers, right? The Vlad juniors, the Pete Alonzo's, et cetera. Not to say that Pete can't go out there and do this. Pete has hit 260 twice, 270 once. He had his worst overall season in terms of uh, efficiency last year. All right. The open, the on-base, the OPS, everything was about as bottom as he has been, and, that, and the war went with it. But 46 homers, almost 120 RBIs, there's, there's power there. We'll see if he can increase the efficiency. I don't know, with a lineup that may be a little bit less efficient overall. But again, this is a Boris client. So any pipe dreams that myself or any other Mets fan has of Pete Alonso signing a long-term extension before free agency probably vanished 12 months ago. And that's just a fact. That's just how people, how Scott Boris does business real quick. Going back to the Yankees. Um, there are no outstanding Yankees arbitration numbers to file here. There is a Marcus Stroman contract that has not hit yet, though. We're assuming that the two for 30, 37 is the right number. So from a luxury tax standpoint now, We've got the Yankees projected to just under $3 million, $2.99 and change. That's going to slide down just a little bit with some, uh, some minor moves and some pre-Arab updates and things like that. But they're about a $300 million team, as are the Mets. And the Dodgers are low 290s right now, with maybe a move or two to be made there as well. 
But those are the big boys. All right. So Pete Alonso's 20 million. There's a there's one outstanding arbitration contract for the Mets, Phil Bickford. It's going to be less than a million dollars. So it's basically going to be a pre-arb, a super pre-arb salary when it's all said and done. But, you know, with their 40-man projection, I've got them at 3025 right now. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of that has to do with retained dollars, 44 million, excuse me, much more than that, almost 50 million of retained dollars, 302.5 for the Mets, 299 and change for the Yankees, 292.5 for the Dodgers, 270 for the Braves, 247 for the Phillies. Those are the top five projected tax payrolls I have on the books right now with the majority of arbitration salaries now being included as per permanent salaries, couple of estimations still out there. I think 23, like I said, go into the actual filings. A uh, couple more. Devin Williams, uh, the big closer in Milwaukee, kind of did a, an about face with us here. He, it was projected that he was going to file and, and go to the court system with this. And then all of a sudden, he responded with a, basically a two-year arbitration buyout. It's a one for seven, which is low in my opinion, a little low, not crazy low for ARB2. And then in 2025, his final year of arbitration, this is a closer, by the way, remember, he's taking on a base club option of $10.5 million with $1 million of escalators based on how many games he appears in or finishes in 2024. We need to get those details. All, all things said, if this guy goes out there and puts another 40 save season together, this is monster value, monster, monster value. Now, he hasn't been consistently the guy, right? Josh Hader's been there for a long time. He's been the eighth inning guy for a lot of years. He got his one year to shine last season, put together 36 saves, a, you know, a one five-year away, a sub one whip, everything you want out of a closer. My, my projection is it's only going to get better. Now, the starting pitching may take a, take a downturn in Milwaukee, and this guy may be a massive trade candidate come July, so you have them under contract. Everybody knows what the numbers are. There's no arbitration projections happening as part of a trade. You can see it with your own eyes. This is what this guy costs for the next year and a half at the deadline. Maybe he, that, that's his preferred route because he wants to be on a team, on a contender. And you know, there's teams like the Dodgers out there that could probably use a midseason upgrade, et cetera, et cetera. I believe in that. I also believe he probably left 4 to $5 million on the table here. No joke if he's a legitimate closer. So I hate to see that happen, but I'm never going to say no to a guy who wants to lock in a couple of years, especially when they're non-free agent years, because of what it can do for his immediate career on a team that may be going down, not up in Milwaukee. But a unique situation here, kind of at the, at the final hour of the arbitration deadline last night. Back to Alonzo quickly. What does $20 million mean for the final year of his arbitration? Well, the way I like to do it is, and how I run my, my arbitration estimations is, I take the full value of a player, all right? And I see where that brings me, full AAV, full guarantees, what the term should be. And then I use percentages. And the percentages I've been using have been pretty accurate based on the past decade or so that we've been tracking arbitration numbers for an arbitration one, two, three, and then for, for a super two situation, arb four. For a lot of these superstar players. This is Pete's ARB3's final year. So the percentages that I've pulled out of his overall value turn a $20 million arbitration salary for this season into essentially $34 million per year. I did a whole article on this. That's where he's been in our system for a long time. We don't have $34 million first baseman in Major League Baseball. <clears throat> we just don't. All right. The years of the Albert Pujols of the world are long, long, long gone. Um, if you, even if you can hit at that position, it's just not a position that pays because it has become a destination for great outfielders or great third basemen or great hitters to graduate, kind of retire to, right? That's where people go when they can't move anymore. And a lot of franchises keep that space open and relatively cheap for that exact scenario, right? We got to get a guy out of the outfield because he's killing us defensively out there. Let's move him to first base. Or a player like Bryce Harper, they just don't want to get him injured anymore, right? They want to prevent the 
elbow injuries and whatever else is happening to him as he gets older and older and his body begins to break down because, you know, he's been going a thousand miles an hour since age 12, right? As youth sports will have it now. It's become that destination spot and that destination position because it does have a lack of movement at times. So Pete's not going to make $35 million a year. I could tell you that out loud right now. Now, he can take a shorter contract that may include a higher AAV, all right? But if he's going long-term, if he wants his nine-year deal that he was talking about last, last offseason when he was going back and forth with Steve Cohen, it's just not going to happen, all right? We're talking in the 20s, you know, maybe approaching 30, maybe, but it's just not a position like the shortstop was for Francisco Lindor where you can go to that value. I can tell you right now, using the percentages that I do, <laughs> the, the contract that he projects to is Lindor's contract, $34.1 million per year. It's just not happening, all right? And I, I did a lot of words on a piece of paper a, a while ago value, evaluating Alonzo's contract extension potential that explains that this position does not do that anymore. So whether the Mets keep him or not remains to be seen. They don't really have a viable replacement unless they move one of their young third basemen over. And there's a few of them in the system. My guess is they trade him, but we'll see. That is not the case with Juan Soto. A, he's younger because he came into the league freakishly young and was a star immediately. He's an adequate defender in the outfield, as I mentioned. And you can move him around a little bit as needed. Not like Mookie Betts, right? You're not moving a guy from right field to second base. That's not normal, by the way. But nothing defensively is going to impede Juan Soto from getting 45, 50 million a year if that's where teams end up getting to. That won't be the case for Alonso. A, he's not the hitter that Soto is, and B, he's at a position that devalues overall average salary. It's just a fact. It stinks, but it's happening. All right. So just something to keep your eyes on when Vlad Jr. and Pete Alonso and some of these high profile first basemen start talking extensions out loud. And Pete, Pete's is going to be very loud here because he's on an expiring contract now. But there's really not an A to A comparison between what Juan Soto is about to go through and what Pete Alonso is about to go through, even though they're both mashing the ball out of the park pretty much at the same clip right now. Okay. I think I'm going to pause there. There are plenty more moves to come. We're now in the expedited version of Major League Baseball's offseason. There's big names left. Pretty much every name that we talked about with Dan Soman, I don't know, right before Christmas, around there, still available. We've had zero movement through the holidays. It's all about getting through this arbitration. Now they have. Now teams have a really good handle on A, their finances for the upcoming year, and B, the relationship with the players. Because unfortunately, that's a huge part of this process. There's 23 players about to go through the court system where the, the object from either side is to devalue the other side. So teams now have to go in, right? The Orioles, I believe, have three players. The Marlins have, I believe, three players, maybe four players. And the team has to walk into this adjudication process and, and, and say out loud all the reasons that this player should make less money. It's an awful plan. It's an awful situation, especially for a, a player who has come up the system like an Alec Bohm in Philadelphia. He's about to hear all the worst things about him from people that have, A, respected him, B, paid him, nurtured him, right? As a kid becoming an adult, it's an awful process. And unfortunately, it's still part of the game. And you're talking about, in some cases, $75,000. That's what one of the gaps is between, I believe it's Casey Mize. I don't remember exactly who it was. Somebody, I think it's the Tigers, has a gap of 75000 between what the player has asked for and what the team has filed at. Those are ridiculous to me, all right? I realize baseball is not football and, and, and basketball in terms of their overall evaluation process. These guys are billionaires, all right? $75,000 for a starting pitcher, if that's the asking price, is an absolutely ridiculous reason to go to arbitration. Pay the man the $75,000. Now, Adolis Garcia, who just won a World Series with the Texas Rangers, I believe is like a $1.9 million gap, right? I think he wants near seven. I believe the Rangers filed at five. If they believe he's a $5 million player, that's fine. And I can understand that because I can tell you that our two-year math on a player that kind of just broke out for one season here in a big, big way is around there, right? That's sort of the market value for him. Do they end up at six? Maybe. But 
you just won a World Series together. You just went through one of the greatest seasons in the history of your franchise together. And now you're going to walk into a courtroom and Adolis Garcia is going to hear about all the reasons why he was a terrible player for, for three, four years. And now all of a sudden, he's in arbitration for the first time, coming off the greatest season of his life, coming off the franchise's greatest season, maybe ever. And these are all the reasons why you're, you're worth $2 million less than you think you are. It stinks. It's brutal. Um, I have sympathy for both sides of it. It is a business. I have sympathy for players who have been team controlled, right? Adolis Garcia made $748,000 last year in the World Series run. All right. So if he wants to add another $2 million to that to try to counter, counteract what he earned last year, good for him. All right. If the middle ground right now between these filing for this player is $6 million, I sure hope it ends up at about six two five. Give this guy at least a little bit of a win because of what happened last season. That's the kind of optics that matter going forward. Agents remember it. Everybody else sees it. People like me get in front of microphones and say out loud, good for the Rangers, at least compromising slightly with their business acumen to make sure that this guy was somewhat treated well. And by the way, you can do that. You can also build in incentives. If you go back to the playoffs, if you go back to the World Series, if you have 550 plate appearances, if you hit 40 home runs, you can add another $50,000 to that salary. There's nothing saying you can't do that with arbitration. We've seen it a couple of times already this season. So it's a battle. It's ugly at times. We've seen relationships keep, become completely fractured. I believe Corbin Burns last year, who is still the top trade candidate right now because of it, right? Completely went through hell through, with the Brewers in arbitration. And uh, guess what? They avoided arbitration this time around. <laughs> so um, it's brutal. So something to keep in mind over the next couple of weeks is this is all going down for about 20 players. But we will continue to update. We'll have plenty of extension and trade discussions in the final month here of the offseason. And then we'll be back into spring training with some real baseball right around the corner. Let's talk basketball with Keith Smith. All right, Keith, it's been a minute. We've been following your work. You've been doing plenty of it. I know the uh, the season is, is not lost, right, with Keith Smith's words and uh, certainly your social media accounts. I want to ping your, your, uh, your brain here on just a couple of things. I'll give you the, the laundry list because I didn't, I didn't preface this in any way. We got to talk about this weird Kawhi deal, even though I know there's no actual f- finality to it yet, um, but there's enough to at least get to it. I want to talk a little bit about just how comfortable you are with the stability of NBA money. Um, I'm starting to hear a little bit too much chatter about how maybe that isn't as strong as we want it to be. And the third thing is just a really quick... I'm talking like... 45 seconds on this trade deadline, right? Because we're still about a month, or maybe even more than a month away, right? Um, a little and, less than a month now. Oh, that's right. It feels like there's still some shifting happening, right? Like, are the Bulls a top four team all of a sudden? You know, <laughs> I mean, this the single highest highest red piece on SpyTrip.com, right? Fixing the Bulls. Is it all for nothing? <laughs> Is this team actually... So let's, let's start there. Let's go in reverse order. Um, just your trade deadline sense is, are things calming down a little bit? Are some of these sellers, maybe not sellers, or do you think, uh, it'll still be plenty to watch here in the next four weeks? What we've seen with the trade deadline is a major shift over the last couple of years where the play in tournament keeps teams alive much longer than it used to. It used to be right around the first of the year. You'd have seven, eight teams. No, it's not our year. We're done. Let's start the sell process or whatever we're doing. Maybe we're already young. We don't have anything to sell, but they would start that process. So now we're in a spot where teams hang in it longer and, and it makes they have to make more difficult decisions of, are we going to chase the play-in tournament and try to be the seventh or eighth seed if we can win our way through? Or are we better off saying, let's be early movers? Kind of what the, the Utah Jazz did a little bit last year of we're not probably – going to sustain this let's get out now let's get out in front of it and let's let's move in a little bit of a different direction so mm-hmm. that's where we're at with the team bulls you mentioned they're in that perfect perfect uh <laughs> land spot or may, maybe imperfect for the bulls fans i think they'd like a real direction either be contenders or, or be bad but the good news is for people who want trade action there's a lot of teams who think they have a chance to win it this year there are also about six or seven teams that know they are really out of it. In those six or seven teams, at least five or six of them have veteran guys that they, they're they ready to trade, they're ready to move on. So that's 
that gives me hope we're going to see a very active trade deadline with a lot of moving parts. Hmm. Is the one team you're not mentioning Detroit? Are they just kind of <laughs> stuck at the bottom and they really shouldn't do too much and just kind of let things progress? No, I mean, they've got veteran guys they should probably be looking at moving, like Bogdanovich and Burks, if they can get something for those guys. Uh, Monte Morris, who hasn't even played for them this year, or Joe Harris. Those guys, are they're all on expiring or pseudo-expiring contracts. Bogdanovich has a very minor guarantee for next season. Those are all guys that could help other teams. And I think Detroit is in a position where what we don't know is normally a team that bad would say, trade the vets, let's get some picks, let's get some young players. There's a sense that they're willing to make a bigger move, even if they know there's no save in this season. This season is done. Historic. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> possibly so. Um, I think they are in a spot where they would potentially like to do something like, all right, let's move some guys, but let's get some guys in who can – we kind of get a jump start on the off season on next year. And we can get a look at veteran player X for the next few months with some of our young guys and get a real sense of how do we want to build this team? So a little bit of a weird approach to roster building, possibly driven by the fact that the GM's on the hot seat. That's always a rough spot to be in where you're going to let a guy like that who may not have the job in July, run the trade deadline in February, but we're going to see with the Pistons. Okay. Um, we got plenty more on that, and there's the NBA Next podcast for lots more trade deadline stuff, so I'm not going to oh, go yeah. too deep into this. I've, I'm, I forgot one agenda item. <clears throat> Excuse me. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about this bolster contract. Um, and not so much what it means, because I know what it means, and it's probably been a long time coming. He's the right guy to get to, get to this point. I'm, this is the way I want to ask this question. Is this a standalone unicorn contract, Right. Or is there somebody who's going to come in and say, oh, that's now the new market. That's the top of the mountain. I have to be here. I know the name being floated is Steve Kerr. I can't even imagine Steve Kerr walking walking into Golden State's front office right now and saying, well, it's time, guys. Look at look at where he is. And I've got a hell of a lot more rings. That that situation is not not happening right now, correct? No, not with a team that's in 12th place in the conference <laughs> and looks like it might be falling apart. But I think what we saw was the bar was set with the Monty Williams contract last summer. And then it became, uh, we heard pretty soon after that, Greg Popovich, we don't know the full details on that one. And we probably never will just mm -hmm. knowing the way the Spurs operate, but we know they made him right up there as far as being the highest paid coach. We just don't know how long it is. My guess is it's not touching the, the uh, Williams length of six years or the Spolster length of eight years. But I think this was the heat saying, all right, we can't mess around here. Let's just get this done. This guy is as big a part of this organization as anybody is. Mm -hmm. And my belief is the eight years, 120 million, maybe comes with a, hey, four or five years from now, if you don't want to do this anymore and you want to bump upstairs and move into the front office, That's right. done, we make it happen. So I think, I think we may see contracts that are more like that for guys who are super established in a, in a place. But the challenge is we rarely get to anybody being there in a place that long, you know, NBA coaches, it's four or five, six years at the, the, that starts to be a long run for a lot of guys. So I, I don't know that we've got anybody else that I'm thinking, cause I I'm with you. I don't know that it's Steve Kerr. We may see it approach it in terms of dollars where he may get that, but it's probably going to be two or three years. I don't think there's any kind of eight year extension coming. I, uh, I don't want to go down the Warriors rabbit hole too much, even though it's becoming increasingly more fascinating. And I think there was a report this morning that everybody's on the table right now, not named Steph Curry. So we're yep. getting to that point. It's, it's, it's sort of trending. But the Steve Kerr stuff probably has to become top billing here. It is an expiring contract. This is one of the worst teams in basketball right now. It, is there a point where, I mean, it, this, is this, this is the soup du jour right now, right? right? Hall of Fame coaches you know, leaving their current positions after long tenures. Is there a world where Steve Kerr is next on this list? You should have put my Pats hat on for this one. That's right. <laughs> you, but then you would have probably seen me shed a few tears and nobody <laughs> wants to watch that. Um, yeah. I mean, it could be that, you know, there's, a, you know, the old saying can't fire all the players. So you fire the coach, right? They, they, whether it's you truly fire them or there's a, Oh, we mutually agreed. I, I don't know how many mutual agreements are actually mutual, I, you know, those ones I always wonder a little bit about, but I do think what we're going to see here is 
there may hit a point where it's, all right, you know what? We made the moves, whatever the trades we may be make over the next month to rebalance this thing, to try to save it and push it forward in a better place this year. But maybe they, the Warriors do decide, hey, the way to kind of kick off our next generation of whatever that's going to be is to start with a new head coach. And, and Steve Kerr is also a guy I think people forget. He walked away once before and was like, I just don't want to do it anymore. And he may be hitting a point where it's like, I just don't want to do this every day, day in, day out anymore. So we're, we're going to see. I, I think it's, I think first step is let's try to tweak the roster again. Let's make a couple more trades. Let's see what it looks like. But I do think we might be reaching a point at the end of the year where it is it's somebody new in charge and going insane. Real quick, just to follow up on something you said, isn't it possible that they literally trade all the players? <laughs> right, I, I mean, <laughs> but right, yeah. right. But but if it but if it's we want to keep Steve Kerr and obviously we need to keep Steph Curry, isn't that enough? Right? What, is it? Wouldn't that be most people's preferred way to operate versus let's just bring in a new head coach? We don't know who that's going to be right now, right? Because it's slim pickings out there for in terms mm-hmm. of a, an actual NBA experienced coach, and you know piece by, well piece by piece this for the next I don't know two trade deadlines and two off seasons. I actually think the better move, and I think the move more franchises might make is trade four players right now, right? Whether it's today or in June, and let Steve Kerr run this ship with Steph Curry and try to resuscitate a brand new roster. Yeah, I think yeah, it's funny because I'm going to make a, another Belichick uh, <laughs> comment here. That's the way he operated, right? For 20 plus years. Every year. The bats of, there's no sentiment, right? You You can't get stuck on feelings. The NBA hasn't generally operated quite as similarly to that. There's a very famous story of Danny Ainge when he was a player, went to Red Auerbach and said, you know, you should probably think about trading Bird and McHale because they're getting hurt. They miss time. You know, if you want to rebuild this thing the right way and really keep the Celtics as the Celtics, you should probably think about trading them. And then funny enough, Danny Ainge was the one who got traded to Sacramento like shortly thereafter. But you saw he is probably the most ruthless of, of, general managers, especially in recent vintage in the NBA, where it is, nope, don't, you know, Isaiah Thomas, everything you went through is great. We have a chance to get Kyrie Irving. See you later. You're out the door. Like there was no um, thought to, uh, you know, thanks for the memories and all that stuff. That's where we'll do a Jersey retirement later. If you get to that point, we'll celebrate you in another way. But most other teams have operated under, man, this is Steph in Draymond, and Clay, in Kerr. That's the kind of core four for the Warriors that led that franchise to heights they never could have dreamed about because they were years ahead of that, had been one of the worst teams in the league for years and years. So I get it from the standpoint of, yeah, the right thing to do is probably start moving some of these guys, really start this thing moving forward. And maybe you can do it quick enough that you can get to being really good again before Steph is done. But that's going to mean moving some other guys who have meant an awful lot to the franchise. And I just don't think they're there quite yet. Okay. Then one more follow-up because it's, (laughs) I've been talking coaches now for the past four hours, believe it or not. Uh, So this is right in in line with, with where my week has gone. And the, the, the notion of trading coaches has come up a lot in the NFL. Is this something that happens in the NBA, Keith? Because because if anybody's tradable, Steve Kerr's tradable, right? Sure. Yeah, you would think it's very very rare, and it's something the NBA doesn't really like because when you trade a coach, you start mixing non CBA things in with CBA mm-hmm. things. The last one that got traded was Doc Rivers when he left the Celtics to go to right. the Clippers. And I think the NBA very much made a all right, we understand what's happening here with this situation, so we're going to make an exception, but it's something the league generally does not really care for. They just don't want to see it because it's, like you said, then you're trading a non-CBA component that there could be a mat. Like like Eric Spolster's deal, that's a great sign for the Heat fans just to say, hey, your ownership isn't cheaping out. Like they're going to pay because you do have some ownerships who believe all the money should be invested into the roster and all the rest of this stuff is replaceable. We'll figure it out. Well, they're owning. No, suppose the guy like he's he's a big part of this. So I don't think we're going to start seeing this like run of coaches getting traded, especially in like Steve Kerr's place. As far as we all know, and you know, 
just as well as I do, tracking down details on coaches' years and salaries. It's it's next to impossible. It's just yeah. information that's not generally made. But as far as we know, Steve Kerr is in the last year of his deal. Yeah. So who like you that's hard. Like you can't do a trade deadline trade for a coach mm-hmm. and just say, hey, come in and now coach your style here with the Charlotte Hornets or something like that. Coaches also don't really want to do that because that means they're bumping one of their brethren out of a job midseason. But offseason, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think we're going to see coach trades become a real real big thing. All right. You mentioned how the Miami Heat are certainly not being cheap here. Uh, something they have, you know, they've gone through iterations up and down with that. The rest of the league isn't either, right? We've got a quiet Leonard extension in season, the first time in his career. It's very rare that we see max players like this go in season. And generally, there's a reason behind it. There's money everywhere. You know, we're about to hit 60 million on the regular. Some contracts are about to hit 70 million uh, in the next couple of seasons here. It's all here. The, the cap is consistently growing at the percentages that you're predicting them to be at. And yet we've got television contracts that appear to be crumbling. Um, there's some attendance stuff. There's been some rating stuff for a while now. Uh, there's some international stuff that's been kind of getting in the way, although even though expansion is right around the corner, you and I both know that's going to happen, but that's Mm -hmm. also a way to generate new money kind of from nowhere. Just overall, where is, where is your sense on just how strong the NBA believes they are financially speaking and, uh, and maybe compare right now to where they thought they were a year ago? Yeah, that's a good question. I think to the first part, I think they still feel pretty good about where they're at because I think the NBA in a lot of ways compared especially to some other sports, they've embraced some of the new media markets. So they're a little bit more open to a lot of the streaming stuff. Uh, They're a little bit more open to, hey, if how people uh, uh, consume our games is through highlights on Instagram, let's Mm -hmm. own that. Let's really be out there. And they'll, they'll, tell you and promote all these things about like, Hey, we get more impressions on, you know, these four versions of social media than anybody else does, or sometimes more than all the other leagues combined because they've embraced it. And also their sport is very highlight driven, right? It's very easy to, Hey, watch this dunk and we'll show it to you three times in the time it takes to show you an at bat or show you, you know, a a long NFL play or something like that. So that's where I think, they're, they feel pretty good about it. I think they know they're still going to make money on the TV deals. It's funny because now I'm seeing some people be like, I don't know, the NBA may not make any money on these TV deals. That's <laughs> yeah, right. they may not make as much as they wanted to, but they're going to make a they're going to make billions of dollars. So we all know this, right? Live sports is still the one thing all these networks are paying for, mm-hmm. and they know. Okay, the NBA too has the benefit of if you get with us you can cover two or three nights a week in coverage that now you don't have to worry about finding something else for in the winter months when there's nothing else really going on. So I think they feel good about that. I think if you could pour truth serum in all of them, they'd probably be like, yeah, we got some issues though. We're probably not going to make quite as many billions as we thought in this next national TV deal, unless we really start to chunk up pieces and parts of our programming and say, Amazon, you want an exclusive Monday night package? Go. Which personally, I don't care, but you have to make it easy for fans to get to it. And the NBA, one of the benefits of the hardcore NBA fan is flipping around to watch two or three or four (laughs) games at once. Nobody yet has told me how to have Amazon up and then quickly switch to the ESPN app or quickly switching to the league pass. They got to make the league pass product better. That's that's. I don't know why major league baseball is the only one who solved this, you know, streaming media issue and they've done it better than anybody else. Cause the league pass is still kind of wonky, which is why I still order it through TV. Cause at least I know it'll be there. The other piece is the regional sports networks. Yeah. The Bally Diamond sports stuff falling apart the way it has has had major impacts. That's a big chunk of why they're not just coming right out and projecting a full 10% growth in the salary cap because they know, hey, we got to be a little bit more conservative here. Maybe it still gets to the maximum of 10% allowable under the CBA, but we're going to only say four and a half right now because let's be a little bit more conservative. And we're seeing Phoenix, Oklahoma City, Atlanta, They those teams are, have all said – 
we're going to put teams over the teams on free over the air television in our local markets. And that's how we're going to get the game out to people. Now, if those teams believe, Hey, that's going to make up in merchandise sales and in ads, ad revenue, and maybe even ticket sales and all that stuff. That's great. But what the rest of the league is looking at and saying, Oh, wait a minute, you had a, I'm making it up, but a $20 million a year TV contract. Now you're going to show that for free. Are you really going to make up 20 million a year? Because that 20 million doesn't just go to the Suns. That's something that everybody kind of shares in collectively. It's the NBA as a whole. So I think that's what they're living in real time is where are we going to land out with all this stuff? Now what the NBA also knows though is they have better than almost any other sport they have the international market outside of soccer, but that's a whole different world owned. The NFL isn't as big as they are over in Europe. It would never mind like in places like China, they're in a better place with their relationship with China than they have been. So that's where I think the NBA knows, Hey, it's, it's, it's almost like I've been equivalent when people ask me about this, I mean, I use the equivalent of it's like when a, when a movie releases and you get the domestic box office, then you get the international box office. And depending on what story you're trying to tell, you may only use just the domestic as like, well, that's all that really matters when no, it all matters. And that's where I think for the NBA, it's, hey, this all matters. They're growing the game in Africa. They're really making inroads into South America. Um, they're starting to make more inroads into Asia and things like that. So the game, I think they feel like we can be, I think they're realistic to know we're not catching soccer worldwide but we can be next. We can be right behind soccer is the, the league everybody likes. Because the other thing is it's a very easy sport to roll into a town in a city and stand up and set up. Mm-hmm. You didn't put up a hoop in a build a court and that's it. You know, leave some basketballs and off you go. And it only takes, you can play it by yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it's a very different from, it's very hard to launch the NFL other places because people are like, we don't have fields and 80 guys that want to play against each other. Like that's not a, not a thing we have. So that's, that's another benefit. So I think that's what the NBA knows we can always go to, we can grow this game bigger internationally. Now that may be for the local people. I'd be like, well, I don't care about that, mm-hmm. but they do. And that that's the difference. You hit everything I was going to ask. I have no follow-ups. I mean, the, <laughs> I, I guess the only one I'll, I'll, I'll ask a little bit more specifically on and it's a conversation we've had with every single sport we follow. Is there any, I, I, I'm getting out of my business hat here, Keith. It's a real pain in the ass bouncing around to, to watch these football games and baseball's only going more and more there, right? They've got an Apple TV contract. It's at some point, somebody's going to push back and say enough is enough on this. Right. And yeah. basketball is the only, the NBA is the only league that has not done this to us yet. Right. And, and I know that, 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 that's pointed. That's a, there's a reason behind it, but if these regional networks fail, it's going there. Right. And by the way, that's the easiest way to get the international market to watch, right. Is to have it on Amazon is to have it on Apple TV, these services that are already global that already have all of that figured out, including the monetary values and the advertising. So I, I know we're going there, but man, you want to talk about TNT ratings dropping, right? I mean, it's going to be worse. It's, it's, it's only going to do damage to the local and domestic markets if they go that route. However, right, Amazon's going to give them a price they can't refuse. You know how this works. So yep. you're, you, you're somebody who watches every night and I know you're trying to bounce around and I know that there are specific games you want to watch every single night. Is it going to deflate you as a fan? if this starts happening? Cause it, to me, it's just devastating. It, it is. It's going to be extremely frustrating. So the example I can use for this, and you mentioned it. So I'm, you, you know this, but for anybody else listening, I'm a Yankees fan. Yeah. The Yankees put a game every, it was like every Friday or something was on Apple TV outside of the regular Apple TV baseball package. So I boot up extra innings on my TV and I, I go and I can't find it. I'm like, Oh, it's cause it's Friday. I got to load up the Apple TV app. Now I don't bounce around through baseball games, but I do with basketball. I am constantly going from game to game to game to game. If it's all right, this one's not so interesting until there's an easier way to get out of the app, go into the other thing. That's where I think the NBA can be smarter in these deals, right at where, hey, we're giving you exclusive access to this, but it's also going to exist in 
NBA League Pass. Mm. Like it will exist there too, so people can get it there. Now, whether or not the streaming services are going to be okay with that, because they're going to say, well, wait, because a big chunk of this for us is getting people to just sign up for the service, right? I, I If I'm Apple TV, I want an exclusive NBA night. So people sign up for Apple Plus or Apple TV, whatever it's called. So that way they sign up and then maybe they'll find three other things they like here too. And they'll stick around beyond the NBA season. So that's that's going to be the difficult part, but I'm with you. It is, it's a real pain. It's very aggravating and it's only going to get worse unless they do it the way the NFL did where it's, there's one game. That's what but, I was going to ask you. Is that I, possible? Did not unless they want to go back to more back-to-backs, more other stuff. Right. They've done so right. much with making the schedule better that it's very hard to go back. Even these Thursday nights, which are semi-exclusive to TNT, mm-hmm. even those are hard to work around for them within the construction. So that's where I I start to wonder if the way this all balances is you add a couple teams via expansion. Maybe you even look at, hey, maybe we go to four. And get into a couple other markets. Mexico City, places. right? Yeah. Mexico City, Vancouver, Montreal, yeah. you know, these cities, places where you're not going to be the fourth franchise, because that is a concern for the league in Seattle and Las Vegas. They're going to do fine in those two cities, but they're fourth, right? You, you've got teams in the big, other big sports. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Las Vegas, the Aces are very popular in the WNBA. Seattle's, uh, what is it, the Sounders are super popular in, in MLS. Mm-hmm. So you're, you've are you got competition there. So one of the things that I think you're going to see is maybe the way the NBA does this is, all right, how we're going to balance everything, and we could do these exclusive TV nights, and that is maybe they do ultimately shorten the regular season. Because what happens is we have not reduced the total number of games. There will still be 1,230 NBA regular season games. Yes, I know that number off the top of my head. Um, Available. (laughs) But they will be spread out amongst 32 or 34 teams now. So everybody, everybody reduces by a little bit as we bring these other ones in. And that's how we can say Monday night, that's Amazon night. Thursday night, that becomes TNT night. And we know that's that's where you go. And then then the people like me and the hardcore NBA fans, I only got to go to one channel for the night. I'm locked in and off we go. I think that could be where this goes. But as of now, there's no there's no sense in going too far down that road because owners are going to look at it and be like, ah, no, I want my 41 home dates. Like I want my 41 home dates. But how you start to, to, to supplement that is you grow things like the NBA Cup. You do yep. more things like that where it turns yep. into, hey, you only play 64 regular season games, 32 at home, but you're going to get nine extra games that are something else, right? They belong to you know the cup or whatever it is. And then that's how, how you still keep owners whole. So I think there's, I think you're going to see in a lot of sense, it'll, it'll look like what soccer looks like some weeks where it's like, I know my team's playing. And I know they're playing at 10 on Saturday morning here on the East coast of the United States, but is this a league game or is this a cup <laughs> game or what is it? And you got to kind of look it up and pay attention to it. I think that could be where we go, but we're talking probably five, six, seven years down the line, probably not this next TV contract, but the one after that. I love it. I, I, I think that makes complete sense to me. So let's add more teams to actually reduce our schedule by default. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's a great concept. It's just to me, that's the balancer you can pull. Right. And then, then you're not putting it on the players where, Hey, guess what? You know how you all loved, we reduced from 20 back to backs a year down to like 11. Yeah. And now that's going back to 18 because Monday nights, we can only run two games on Amazon. And so we got to work around it. Like it's the the players, they, they, they're not going to want that. The teams aren't going to really want it either because they like knowing, Hey, we're there. And then, then you start pulling the carrot more on the guys of, hey, we reduced the regular season. Yep. You got to play, mm-hmm. right? And and we're seeing some impact of the new changes in the new CBA and that so far. We'll see. You know, I kind of have my doubts what it will look like in February, March, in the beginning part Me of too. April. But but we'll see. I'm you know I'm I'm going to be optimistic and trust in it. And as long as these playoff races all stay close. And that's part of what we started with is when you've introduced the play-in tournament, now you've kind of introduced – uh, the second level too, because now you have the top six where I just got to get in that top. I do not want to mess around down in the playing tournament where one bad night and I'm out. No, let me get into the top six. So you've really created 
the race for the top seed in the conference, the race for the top six. Well, really, top seed, home court, top six, then play in tournament. And that's been been an interesting change too, because now even the teams in the middle have a little bit more to play for than they they ever did previous. I'm going to punt on the Kawhi conversation until we have final details. How we do? And I think this was this was a great conversation. It's a uh, it got exactly where I wanted to go. Um, I just don't know how much the regional network stuff is going to impact. You know, and nobody does yet. They have a yeah. sense of it. You can tell there's some leaks starting to come out that there's some cracks in the armor a little bit. <clears throat> By the way, bigger conversation in baseball. Way less financially sound system could have gigantic ramifications to baseball. So if it's going to hurt there, it might ding the NBA a little bit, right? It might ding yeah, them a little bit. Heard, like, you know, far better than I would, but like I've heard the Rangers are like in a holding pattern because they don't Crazy. know how much money they're going to have to spend. At least in the NBA, you have a thing like the salary floor and you have the salary cap. So at least it's, hey, we're going to land somewhere in between there. So even though this stuff is going on, we're still mm-hmm. going to have to spend some money and get there where it's like, it feels like, the World Series champions are like, well, we might be gutted because we don't have a TV contract, and that, which just feels broken to me. Ugh. It feels like there should be some fail-safe for the league to come. Now, as a Yankee fan, if that means a couple other guys end up in pinstripes, then I'm not going to cry about it. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> On the day that Juan Soto is about to get his $34 million. Perfect. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> Good stuff, Keith. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs>